Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning, uh, before we get into our text, I'd like to just pray one more time, um, and then we'll get into our text this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us in just the sheer fact that we are able to be here gathered together as your people this morning. We thank you uh, for your mercy and your grace to us. That is why we are here, as we have come for, is to experience it and to praise you for it. We pray now as we look into your word that as we unpack it and understand it, that we will leave refreshed in our passion to know and follow you as we look at your word. Give me a sense of humility and joy and courage as I look at your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are continuing our series, The Family of God on Mission, that Pastor Gerald started at the beginning of the year, first Sunday of January. We are taking uh, a look at the life of the church uh, from the perspective of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Pastor Gerald, I went back and, and listened to his introduction in the first uh, sermon uh, for the series just to share with a few comments that he made and questions he posed for us as we uh, kind of looked through the series. And two questions he asked us initially were, who are we as a collected church? Who are we? What's our identity? And then, what are we about? What is our calling as a church? And as is self-evident in the title of the sermon, uh, one of the ways we're going about that is the f- this notion of family and this notion of mission, the family of God on mission. As I've been thinking about uh, this idea, these two ideas, um, even as Pastor Gerald's been preaching, I realize that family... Uh, for some, may be a painful reality. Family, for some, may create stress. We hope, then, that this congregation, as we wrestle with this identity as family, can be a place of healing and reimagining what family can be for you. And I hope that the series, uh, the word family, the reality of family, can become life-giving to you. For some, family is a place of safety and good memories. And I hope we can give you, if that's your experience with family, a vision for family that is actually thicker than blood. Pastor Gerald had this quote from his first sermon. He said, blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than both. The question, though, is how do we create a positive life-giving culture at Calvary, family culture at Calvary, meaning we're maintaining care for this existing congregation here, and yet doing it in a way without being disconnected or even irrelevant to the surrounding community and communities of which Calvary resides. This is the tension of the New Testament. The local church is not given the freedom to simply choose family, or mission. 
And this is what we're highlighting through this series, is this tension we have to live with, is taking care of the internal community, but also looking outside of it. As mission, we have a cause. We have something to live for. We have something to share. We have a calling that includes, our calling as a community includes the well-being of our neighbors, both their immediate needs and their eternal needs. And to this end, uh, this is the sermon series, Family on Mission. How do we keep these tensions both at play? The first sermon we looked at, Pastor Gerald preached on grace, the power of the family on mission. The second sermon was peace, the unity of the family on mission. And then last week, the begin love, the beginning and end of the family on mission. And then this morning, we're going to, as we've read already for us this morning, Ephesians 4, looking at one another, the growth of the family of God on mission, the gift that God gives to us of each other. Before we get into the beginning part of our text, though, I kind of want to jump to the end and cast the vision for where the text is going. If you look back at verse 13, verse 13 says, Until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then down at 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the vision for this text, where this text is heading, is that the church would be like, by analogy, that the church would be like fully matured adults loving God and loving others. As adults, the vision for our life is self-giving love. When a child acts self-centered, it is off-putting, but we know it's a child. And they need correction and formation. It is appropriate to be patient. When it, as adults, we act self-centered. It's not just actually off-putting. It is inconsistent with our design. Our full maturity as human beings, as adults, as adult human beings, our full maturity was gifted to us to love. The reason why we have these functioning adult bodies is with the goal of love. And when we are not exercising self-giving love as adults, it's not just off-putting, as it is with children. It's actually contrary to how we were made and why we were gifted to be this way. As fully formed and matured, matured adults, we should use our being to work toward the flourishing of those around us. And so Paul uses this idea and this analogy of the growth and maturity of an adult from childhood to adulthood 
to the growth and the life of the church. Just like as human beings, we should grow into self-giving love, that we have minds that are formed and bodies that are formed now to fully self-sacrificially love those around us, so the church should also not remain in infancy or childhood, but every single joint, every single limb, every single finger and toe is meant to grow, by analogy, grow up into, build itself up to love. This is the vision of the church. And so every person at Calvary, even the first service people, every person at Calvary matters. All of your situations, all of your stories matter. They have unique ways in which they can be a part of forming us collectively like an adult body into a body that loves. This is Paul's vision for the church. The church functioning as a fully matured adult that is building itself up to love. Toward this vision, Paul gives the church a focused challenge. It's, it's not so much a command, though it can function as a command, as much as a challenge. He compels us to something. If we go back to verse 1. Because this vision, because of this vision of a fully formed, adult-like church that is loving everyone around it, Paul gives us, because of that calling, remember, that's the vision, that's where we're going. Because of that, that reality, that's where we're going, Paul gives us and urges us to do something very focused. This focused challenge is this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In order to get to the vision, in order to get to where we need to go, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? What will it look like? First, it looks like growing together. Our growth into adulthood is dependent upon each other. We cannot live up to Paul's challenge of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called by ourselves. You cannot, as an individual, fully live into what Paul's calling us to as a church, as an individual. We need each and every one of us. This calling is fundamentally social and communal. Our ability to grow in Christ is dependent upon each other. Paul's vision for the fully formed church is not isolated individuals protecting their own morals. Instead, Paul's vision for the fully formed church is wrapped up in expressions of love of the collected gathering. In the midst a collection of love in the gathering in the midst of its messiness and beauty. This is a vision not of independence. This is a vision of dependence. 
we are dependent upon each other to grow. What will it look like? How do we do this collective growing? First, we recognize that God, through Christ, has already unified us, as Gerald referred to a few weeks ago. It's a unity that's already been bought for us by the work of Christ. It is ours to maintain. This unity is not something we have to create. Christ created the unity through himself, and we have to maintain it. What does it look like to maintain a unity that walks then in a manner worthy of the calling so that we are growing up into mature adults? Well, this is where Paul gets very, very practical. Looking at chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul talks about these sweeping, comprehensive theological ideas about who we are and how God is working in the world. But then when he gets to chapter 4, he gets quite specific and quite practical. If we want to maintain the unity so that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling, so that we're a fully matured adult living in love, he says, live with humility. Live with gentleness. Live with patience. Bear with one another in love. That's what it looks like. That's the vision. That's the way to the vision. Humility is not weakness. Humility is the control of power. Every single one of us as adults, to, in various ways and to levels of degree, have these capabilities and these powers. That's what it means to be an adult, to have these capabilities that have been formed and developed. Humility is not then thus doing with our giftings and our powers whatever we want. Humility is with self-control using them to love those around us for their flourishing and their good. That's humility. Humility is the opposite of passiveness. I have never passively walked into humility. Not once. I've never accidentally walked into humility. It has been a choice that I had to wrestle with and grab my will and try to wrestle it by Christ's strength. Humility is hard enough in my own home. Ask my family. Humility is hard enough in my own home, let alone in a church, in a community like this. It is not weakness. It is not passiveness. It is control of power under the sovereign, humble power of Jesus. The other way is gentleness. Once again, gentleness does not come by accident. Gentleness comes with the intentional decision to act for the flourishing of someone else, to speak to someone words of healing, to intentionally learn about someone's story because you know, know their brokenness and can speak words of healing, loving with knowledge and wisdom, not ignorance. 
This is gentleness. Patience. Patience is not theoretical. Patience is not hypothetical. It really means be patient. The most practical way to be patient is to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And bearing with one another in love. In love. The full commitment to the flourishing of another being. The first step toward bearing with one another in love is realizing that people have to put up with us in the first place. Oftentimes we think how to be long-suffering, how to be forbearing, how to bear with one another is someone else's problem. Well, the first thing is realizing that they have to deal with us. Having an appropriate self-awareness that our personalities affect everyone around us. We don't get the choice whether it does or doesn't. It does. And realizing that they have to put up with me. And so why would I do anything other than listen to them? Quick to listen and slow to speak. So this fully formed, mature, this vision of a fully formed, matured adult who's loving doesn't happen by accident. It happens because through the calling to walk in a manner worthy of the calling and what that will look like is with the unity already created by Christ, maintaining it in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. That's the calling. On the basis of what, though? As I've already said, it's hard enough to, to live this out with your own families and friends. On what basis can we walk in this manner of humility, gentleness, and patience, and love? Paul says, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. This is what we are united by. The reality that God is working in the world through his son and continues to work by the power of his spirit in profound ways to use us to share the hope and love of Jesus Christ. This is our basis. This is our unity. How will we do it? How do we go about doing this then? Well, how do we do it? We know what it looks like. How will we make this happen? Well, Paul says that grace was given to each and every one of us. Grace was given to you. Grace was given to you. It was from Jesus, and it was for you. But why? Why does Jesus give grace? We have a narrative. We have a narrative that the world is a broken place. To put it simply, the good creation has fallen upon hard times. Death reigns. We are all trying to make sense of why this world became so broken and so corrupt. Many of us 
have come to the realization that we are part of that problem. Our own self-centered, prideful will is part of the problem. We also, some of us, have realized that there are larger systems and structures in place that perpetuate injustice. This is why Jesus went on his traveling itinerary that Paul refers to. This is what Jesus' traveling itinerary here in Ephesians 4 is because of. Because of this situation, this narrative of a broken world where death reigns, Paul talks about Jesus' traveling itinerary. It is meant to address this once and for all, this problem of evil. And so Paul says, initially, Paul says that Jesus ascended. That's part of this itinerary that Jesus has. He ascended. So we see that he refers back to Psalm 68 and says, when he ascended, in reference now to Jesus, and then in verse 9, in saying he ascended. So Paul is making just this general reference initially that Jesus ascended. The simple logic that Paul is trying to work with then is that it makes sense that if Jesus ascended, that he first, what? Descended. Simple enough, right? Another way of saying it would be if Jesus returned to his heavenly father, that it makes sense that he first left his heavenly father. Jesus' traveling itinerary, his descending and then his ascending was not for any reason because he was just looking to travel, but because he had the goal of defeating the ultimate evil of death. And so, in his travels, he went himself all the way to the grave to have it finally defeated. And there was no greater pronouncement that his victory was won than when his father brings him back from the dead and he returns to the presence of his heavenly father. And it is in this situation where Jesus currently reigns and rules that he gives grace. Through and by the Spirit, he gives grace as he's in the presence of his heavenly Father. We have, in this grace, we see gifts that are given. Gifts that are given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And you may be thinking, well, I thought you just said these gifts and this grace is for everyone. That sounds for about five categories of people. <laughs> what about me? Well, what's interesting is the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, their sole function is to actually equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry themselves so that, once again, the body of Christ can be built up. And you may be wondering, but am, am I gifted? Do I even bring value to this church? Well, let me remind you, everyone has gifts. Paul says that grace was given to each one of us. Every one of us has gifts. Also, the list that Paul gives us here is not at all comprehensive. Not all the possible gifts were listed, only five. The listed gifts also are meant, what's interesting is the gifts he does list 
exists solely so that the other gifts can flourish. Gifts were given to everyone. Grace was given to everyone. And these five gifts, their sole reason for existence is to allow the other gifts to fully flourish. It's not because these five gifts have any inherent value assigned to them. Actually, it's the opposite. They're the servants. They're the ones that their sole focus is to get all the other gifts. We as a staff, if we're not maximizing all the gifts that are, are here in the church, then we're not doing our job. You can do a job performance review for me later, not now. But that's our function. Our function is to try to find as creatively as we can ways for your gifts to flourish. It's not that those five are unique and special, inherently assigned value, but they're there to serve. Let me remind you again, everyone has gifts. The mark of a healthy church is one in which every member is aware of the grace of God upon their lives and is actively ministering. Paul talks about gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 also. And if you're wondering, do I really have a place? Do my gifts matter? Paul gives these very general categories for the kind of gifts you could have. Could you fit under these two categories? A variety of service, and a variety of activities. Those are like quoting Paul. That's pretty open-ended, right? All of your gifts can fit under the umbrella of a variety of services and a variety of activities. We have needs like crazy here. Some people, even just in small groups, need words of encouragement. Can you exist simply? If, can your gift of encouragement simply just be exercised in your small group? Use it. Challenge yourself. Maybe you want to volunteer children. No fully formed, mature adult discards children. Our children's ministry should be a good sign of whether our church is healthy or not. If we are indifferent to our children's and the ministries around them, it is not a good sign of sacrificial love and patience and humility and gentleness. Our students, our kids, I know it's cliche to say our kids live in a hard time, but they do. It's tough. It's tough to be in middle school and high school. It's tough. And they need, they deserve godly adults that will come alongside them and encourage them. There are so many activities that could be done. I'm, I mean, the list is endless. But remember, however your gift gets exercised, the goal of your gift is not for your self-actualization. The goal of your gift, according to Paul, is for the common good. The common good. In closing, remember the vision. Remember the vision that we started with. And the vision leads to that Christ might fill all things. How is he going to fill all things? 
How is Christ going to go about filling all things? How he's going to do that is he's going to go back into the presence of his Father and send the Spirit and give us grace and gifts and give his Spirit to us so that Jesus of Nazareth, who could only be in one place at one time, now by his Spirit and dwelling his believers, can be in multiple places all the time. The way he does that is by gifting us is by using us to fill all heaven and earth with life and with love. That is our calling. Our calling is to be the body of Christ by analogy, the body of Christ in this world giving life and love. Growth stated possible positively for us by Paul is that we would, through this, attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Negatively stated is that we no longer remain children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine but instead, speaking the truth in love. Our growth as a church, our growing up to be fully formed body that loves the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loves our neighbors, ourselves, our growth is not inconsequential. You may think, well, I, whatever, so we don't fully mature, fine. No, you don't understand. If we don't fully mature, this is the way that God is working in the world is through fully formed bodies of Christ spread throughout the globe. Our growth as a church is not inconsequential. It is directly connected to how Christ is filling the world with his life and his love. And it starts, it starts by us acting in humility and gentleness, and patience, and love toward each other. And that's why Jesus' vision in John 17 was that the world would see us unified. Because if they saw that, they would also believe in Jesus. Not as coercion or manipulation, but as drawn into the sovereign goodness of Jesus. That is our calling as a church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us in a way that we can read together and learn together and study together and practice together. I pray, Father, that you, in a way beyond that we could imagine or think, would you compel us practice humility and practice gentleness and patience and love, thus fulfilling the challenge to walk in a manner worthy of the calling so we grow to full mature adulthood as a church. I pray this in Jesus' name.